Bibles, if you will, and join me at Matthew chapter 19, the passage that Paul read for us. And Mary, thank you for that beautiful prayer. Your heart was heard, and not only by us, but also by the Lord. If you'll forgive me, I am required to make just a couple of announcements as moderator of our church, and that is that we will have a called family meeting of our church next Sunday morning at 11 o'clock. You are invited to join us for that meeting. We will have one combined worship service in this room at 9 o'clock. There will be no Sunday school organized, especially for our preschoolers and children. You are encouraged if your Bible study group wants to meet early and come prior to worship, of course, the building will be open. You will be welcome, and you can come and have Bible study. But there will be no organized Sunday school next Sunday morning. Uh, the service will be at 9 o'clock. At 10.30, there will be time for a question and answer session with the um, Minister of Worship and Administration candidate for you to ask questions, to hear their testimony, and their call to ministry. And then at 11 o'clock, if the timing works well, uh, those are just tentative times, we will go into a family meeting to uh, hear the two recommendations from the search committee. We are required by the bylaws to provide you with any actionable items one week in advance, and we have fulfilled that by placing those on the Welcome Center counter. There's a little goldenrod piece of paper that looks like this, and it has the two items that will be voted on next Sunday morning at uh, 11 o'clock. Also, let me just go ahead and draw your attention very quickly to this white piece of paper. The front looks very much like last week's did, but the important thing is the back side. This is the entire schedule for the weekend, and you will notice that there are two particular things that will be of interest to, to you. One of them is uh, only if you like to sing or like listening to other people sing, and that is that Saturday at 11.30, there'll be uh, what uh, we call a jam session. It's kind of an open singing. If you play an instrument, if you uh, play, your, play the comb or the harmonica, or if you just like to hum along, you're welcome to come. It's primarily for those, any of those involved in our worship ministry team at any level, choir members, accompanists, tech team, praise team, to come for that at 11.30. There will then be a luncheon for that team, but you are welcome, any of you are welcome to come for that jam session at 11.30. But the big event is Saturday evening. Next Saturday evening, March 25th, from 6.30 until 8 o'clock, there will be a reception, uh, meet and greet, uh, cake and coffee reception for the candidate and his wife um, out at the Beacon in the Beacon Theater. This will give you an opportunity to meet the candidate and his wife uh, up close and personal. I have a feeling their daughter will be with them, their two-year-old daughter, and um, so we'll have fun with that as well. But that will give you an opportunity. Before uh, he leads us in worship next Sunday morning, you'll have a chance to meet him, uh, maybe introduce yourself, uh, whatever you'd like to do, but that gives you that opportunity. Uh, also, please don't forget that tonight at 6 o'clock, in lieu of our normal evening worship service, there will be a, an open a town hall meeting for you to come and ask any question you would like of the committee, of me, um, as far as the process or anything having to do with that, and that will last um, an hour or um, if it doesn't take that long to get all the questions answered, we'll be done when those questions. I know some of you uh, Sunday night people had said we'd probably start Peter, but I think we're going to postpone that till next week because I don't want to do anything to cut off the conversation tonight with questions. I think five, at least five of the six committee members, well, I think five, uh, will be here. One has to work, and uh, of course, I will be here as well with any questions that you might have. Matthew chapter 19. Let's bow together for prayer. Father, I hate interrupting the flow of worship to make announcements, although I realize this is your business too. 
But now we want to focus all of our attention on you and on your word. As Mary so beautifully prayed a few moments ago, this topic oftentimes can be tense and uncomfortable, but it should not be. Your word is very clear. Your grace is abundant and free-flowing. Your love overcomes every event in our lives. And I pray that as we hear your word this morning, that we will give you the honor and the glory and the praise for everything that is said and done. For it's in Jesus' name that we ask it. Amen. I know this is going to come as a surprise to you, but I'm reading a book right now. Um, in addition to the Bible. And the chapter that I'm reading right now is about the concept of Jesus being Lord of all, Jesus Christ being Lord. And what's interesting about that is, this, as you probably know, was the key phrase that the early church used uh, in the first years, the first decades of the early church, was that Jesus Christ is Lord. Paul, in Philippians chapter 2, brings that out, that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And what was interesting is that that phrase, that concept, was not born out of what was going on in Rome at the time. You probably know that Rome in that day was very polygamous, polygamous, polytheistic, it was probably polygamous too, polytheistic, there were many, many gods, and, but they saw Caesar as the embodiment of the high God. So he was the one that oversaw all of the other gods. So whenever a subject people would be taken into the Roman Empire, their God would come under the umbrella of Caesar. But that's not why the Christians said Jesus is Lord. They said that because it grew out of their Israelite background, their Hebrew background, because 2,000 years earlier and another time of polytheistic pagan religion when there were Baals and Ashtoreths and Dagons and other gods, gods of the field and gods of fertility and gods of the river and gods of the harvest and gods of the, 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 the weather. In what's called the Shema of Deuteronomy chapter 6, the Israelites stood and with one voice said, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. One God. And what that did for them is that united to understand that you don't have to try to appease all of these different little demigods with all these things. We go to one God, and nothing is secular under that one God. That's why when you read through the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, sometimes it seems really kind of confusing because there's, you know, on one verse there's something about murder. The next verse is about, is about mildew on your kitchen wall. And the next verse is about how you wash your hands. The next one is about how you take care of your animals. The next one is about how you treat your spouse. And you're saying, wow, it just seems like it's all kind of mixed together until you realize that in the Israelite mind, everything came under God's umbrella. And so in the same way, when the early Christians declared Jesus, who we now understand to be the Christ, is Lord of all, it meant there was nothing that did not come under the umbrella of Christ's lordship in our lives. Because today, 2,000 years on the other side of Christ, guess what? We still live in a polytheistic pagan world where there are multiple gods, maybe not little idols and temples, but there's the God of consumerism and the God of hedonism and the God of narcissism and, there are, and, and all of the secularism, all of those things. And we are tempted as Christians to think there are certain things in our lives that fall under God's control and other things over here that we control. And if Jesus teaches us anything in the Gospels, and God, through his word, teaches us, that, that is that there is nothing in a Christian's life that is secular. 
Everything in God's world is sacred. Everything in our relationship to Christ is sacred. He governs every aspect of our lives, from the way that we sweep the floor to the way that we share the gospel. And if we can accept that reality in our lives, we will begin to understand what it truly means to deal with the topic we have to deal with today. So let's take a look at it. Basically, the Pharisees come to Jesus. He has left Galilee, Jesus has. He's finished his last section of teaching. He's left Galilee never to return again, so far as we know, according to Scripture, and is headed to Jerusalem, headed to Judea, headed to die. And he's over on the east side of the Jordan, the path typically taken by people so they wouldn't have to go through Samaria, coming around, and the Scriptures tell us that the Pharisees come to him and they ask him two questions. The first question is found in verse 3. It says, the Pharisees approached him to test him and asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife on any grounds? I want you to see two things in this question. First of all, I want you to see the nerve of it, and then I want you to see the nature of it. The nerve of it. Do you see what was happening in verses 1 and 2? We're told that when Jesus had finished his teaching, he departed Galilee, went to the region of Judea across the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Here Jesus is with these crowds, and it says that he healed the crowds. He didn't just heal one little lame man or one little blind girl. He was healing multitudes of people, and yet the Pharisees come, and they don't ask, so where do you get all this power to do this healing? They ask about divorce. They don't ask about, what is this that you're teaching about death and resurrection? They ask about divorce. They don't ask, Why do you proclaim yourself to be the Messiah? They ask about divorce, the nerve of them. When Jesus was doing these wonderful, great acts of God's faith and power, they're asking him about a little minor, relatively speaking, issue. Why? Well, Matthew tells us in the way he worded it. It says, they approached him to test him. That same word could be used, the word we use for tempt. They wanted to put him to the test. You see, there were two camps in that day about the issue of divorce. One group, the group that followed Hillel, believed that you could only divorce your wife. Remember in those days, women didn't have the same right to divorce, although later on in Mark, Jesus gives women equal rights with men. We'll talk about that another time, another place. But if Hillel said you can only divorce your spouse if there's been some type of moral lapse, some type of sin within the marriage. The other group were more liberal, the group that followed Shammai. They believed that you could divorce your wife for any reason that suited you, even if she burned your breakfast that morning, the toast was a little bit too done. And one of the, Akita, one of the uh, major rabbis said, even if you found another woman that looked more attractive, you could divorce your wife and marry this other woman. So they come to Jesus to ask him this question, thinking we're going to trap him. We have a feeling he'll probably take the conservative side. We heard his teaching on the Mount back in Matthew chapter 5. We know how he feels about marriage and divorce. So he's probably going to say that he's on the conservative side of Hillel, which is exactly what we want. Because then the the trap will snap shut. Why? Because just a few weeks earlier, there was another man who believed that divorce was wrong, had the gall to tell King Herod that, and... lost his head now when we go to Pilate and say by the way we know who taught John that stuff and his name is Jesus and there he is that'll be the end of Jesus but even if he decides to side with the liberal side we can say so you don't believe that Moses was a good prophet because he said only for iniquity or infidelity well Jesus comes back and gives them an answer what's interesting though is the way he answers the question 
Look at what he says in verses four to six. Haven't you read, Jesus says? And he's kind of being almost sarcastic here. Not really bad, but just kind of, haven't you read the Bible? Haven't you read that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female? Took that right out of Genesis chapter one, verse 27. And he also said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, man must not separate. You see the two things that Jesus does here? First of all, he goes back to the Bible. But he doesn't argue with him about Deuteronomy 24. That's the passage they base their question on. And we'll get to that in just a second with their follow-up question. But he doesn't go back to argue them the merits of Deuteronomy 24. He goes all the way back to Genesis and looks at God's original purpose rather than the legal obligation that is given by Moses. It's almost like he's saying, so you know how to read, but have you forgotten your ABC song? Letter A, God intended for marriage to be for life. That was God's original intention in the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, there was no way, no place for divorce. Have you not read that? And then he expounds on the text in verse six. He gives his own interpretation of what that means. So, if Genesis 2.24 is correct, man leaves his father and mother, joins to his wife, two become one flesh, they're no longer two, but they're one. Therefore, if God has joined them together, man must not separate them. You see, Jesus could have argued with them about the merits of what kind of sin could or couldn't be committed, or he could have argued about the equality of men and women before God, or he could have argued about homosexuality or other variants and deviations on God's plan. But no, he decided to talk about the issue of unity. See how many times he mentions it? It says, joined to his wife, one flesh, no longer two, one flesh, God joined together, man must not separate, unity, 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 unity. His theme was the fact that when God created the marriage relationship, it was designed to be a unity. You see, God's math isn't like our math. God's math is that one plus one plus one equals one. That's the doctrine of the Trinity. And then one plus one equals one. That's the doctrine of marriage. And so if God creates one unit, who is a mere man to divide that unit? Unity is the theme, but God is the primary focus. Did you notice that? That's not quite so obvious until you look at it. God is the focus here because even though it says the man will leave this, but all of it is about how God joins them together. God is the actor. Talk about e-harmony. This is Elohim harmony, you know? God is the one that brings this couple together and joins them as one. And because of that, they are to live their life together. Well, the Pharisees didn't hear all that. All they heard was, you took the side of the conservatives. And they go, snap, there goes the trap. And they asked the second question right there in verse 7. Why then, they asked him, did Moses command us to give divorce papers and to send her away? Well, if, 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 that was the, if that was the original plan, why did God, through Moses, command us to do that? They want to get him in the Torah trap and take the law and say, why does this happen then? And Jesus, in his response, gives them two correctives and a command. Look at what he says. He says in verse 8, he told them, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because of the hardness of your hearts, but it was not like that from the beginning. Oh, you see the two correctives? The first one, 
They had said, why did Moses command us? And he says, no, no, Moses didn't command it. Moses permitted it. He allowed it. Because God knew that it was going to happen. It was not God's original plan, but God allowed it to happen. And the reason was because, that's the second corrective, was because of their hard-heartedness. Not because it was God's original plan, not because it was God's will, but because it was God's permissive plan. N.T. Wright, the great British theologian, gives a tremendous analogy, and I brought it with me because I don't want to misquote him. Let me just read you two sentences from N.T. Wright. He says, just as a car is made to drive safely on the road, not to skid around colliding with other cars, I guess he'd never do about demolition derby, but that excluded, never came to Monroe County Fair. So marriage was made to be a partnership of one woman and one man for life, not something that could be split up and reassembled whenever one person wanted it. Moses didn't say, as it were, when you drive your car, this is how to have an accident. What he said was, when you drive a car, take care not to have an accident, but if tragically an accident occurs, this is how you deal with it. In other words, Moses, God through Moses, gave them instructions for what to do when because of their sinfulness, their marriage would end in something that was not God's original intention. You see, marriage was not the problem. Sin was the problem. Our sinfulness, and notice Jesus says, you're not our. He didn't say there in the past. He says you're, because he can't be identified with sin himself. But we are the reason why God has to, this is the reason why 1 John 1, 9 is in our Bibles. You ever stop and think about that? If we did what we're supposed to do once we become believers, we wouldn't need 1 John 1, 9, now would we? But the problem is, we still do what? We still sin. Does God want us to continue sinning as believers? No, he doesn't want us to, but he knows that we will, right? So because he knows that we will, he gives us a way to get forgiveness. So he wrote 1 John 1, 9 through the apostle John so that we would know that if we confess our sins, he'll be faithful and just to forgive us. So in the same way, it wasn't that Moses commanded it. See, here's the deal. I'm about Deuteronomy 24. Let me just give you a quick overview of that. Basically, what Moses said in Deuteronomy 24 was not, this is what you should do. He's saying, if this happens, if you decide to divorce your wife, for iniquity in her life or in the marriage relationship. And she goes and marries a second man, and that man then decides to divorce her. She cannot come back and marry you again. That was what Moses was really saying. It wasn't about the divorce process. It was about what happens afterwards. And here's the deal, friends and beloved. I really believe this actually is not teaching about divorce. It's teaching about that first husband. Be careful that you don't send her away too quickly because you might wish you could have her back. But guess what? You can't. See, this was a warning to the husband to be careful and not make rash decisions. And so Jesus is saying, you got it wrong. Let me correct you. Then he gives a command. This is in verse 9. And I tell you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Two surprises in that. First of all, the fact that he allows anything at all. I mean, Jesus could have said, if you follow me, we're going to go back to Eden. We're going to go back to pre-sin. We're going to go back to the way that God originally intended from the very beginning. But he didn't do that because he knew. And one of the things that we learn about Jesus, and, and I want you to understand this, is that, that Jesus doesn't very often give us a tightly bound ethic. He gives us principles by which to live our lives. We'll talk about that some more in just a second. So Jesus says, Yes, there is an exception. The other thing that's surprising about this is 
probably it shouldn't be to us, but it was in that day, was his authority. He didn't say, well, over in this passage, it says this. He says, I say to you. We talked about that, was it last week or two weeks ago? Always pay attention when Jesus says, I say to you. Because he's speaking with the authority of God himself. And Jesus speaks. And he gives us this one exception. Now, just for a minute, let's take the exception out for just a second. Just, let's just set it over aside and see what he says without the exception. Look at verse 9 again with me very closely. And I tell you, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. That is the basic standard. Anyone that decides, I'm just going to break this marriage apart just because I'm not happy, I don't want it anymore, I'm going to move on, and marries someone else is committing adultery and sinning against God. Why? God, because God's the one that put the marriage together. God is the one that allowed them to be Jesus. Now, wait a minute, Pastor, you don't understand. I wasn't a believer when I got married. You know what? Do you think God didn't know that? You think God didn't know you were going to become a believer later on? You think God said, well, I'm going to let you mess up and marry the wrong person? No, God superintended that marriage too. And God says, I want you to come together and I want you to trust me with your marriage. But he does give the exception, except for sexual immorality. And man, oh man, that leads us to a thousand questions, doesn't it? 996 of which I'll not have time to answer today, but I'll answer four of them, all right? You want the other 996? Good luck, but I'll give you four. Number one, what is meant in this passage by sexual immorality? Sexual immorality is any physical, do I have any small children in the room? I'm always careful what I say when there are little ones in the room. Any physical relationship that is outside the bonds of marriage. It could be bestiality, it could be homosexuality, it could be adultery, which is probably the main thing he's talking about here. But anything that goes against the physical relationship that should be had between a husband and a wife. Why is that the only exception? Why is adultery the only exception? Because adultery is the thing that breaks the bond that God created by putting the man and the woman together, which was that they together would become one flesh, which means they are a unit. And you don't break that unit apart by bringing some other issue into it, whatever that may be, if it violates the bond between husband and wife. Number three, is adultery the only exception? Well, it is here. But we remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15, Paul gives us another exception. When he's talking about if, if a couple are married, one is a believer, the other is not, and the unbelieving spouse abandons the believer, Paul says the believer is free in Christ to marry again. They're not guilty. Now, Listen very, very carefully. I know so far we're probably all on the same page and we've been floating together, but I need you to listen very carefully to this. Not that I don't think you are, but just want to make a point. Because I've spent a lot of time praying about this. I believe one of the reasons that God gave us 1 Corinthians 7.15 is to remind us that there are times when by God's Holy Spirit, the church has to very carefully and prayerfully help people walk through situations where divorce may be an option. Let's just give the classic example I think all of us would agree about. Let's say a man is physically abusing his wife again and again and again and again. There are actually people in the Christian church that are pharisaical enough to say, you know what, no, you can't divorce him. You've got to go back home and just pray. But the minute he commits adultery, here's your free ticket out of that marriage. Do you really think that's what Jesus intended? Do you really think that's what God meant? I don't. 
But I think we have to handle that very, very carefully. And we have to understand that the basic standard, the basic principle of marriage has not changed, even though at times there may be circumstances where the vow, the bond has been broken, and then we think about it together. Fourth question, does the sin of adultery necessitate divorce? Absolutely not. Nowhere does Jesus command that, we sh- that you should divorce if your spouse is unfaithful or commits adultery or some other violation of, of the marriage vow. He allows it. And sometimes that is the best option, especially when the spouse that has committed the adultery is unrepentant. Does not confess the sin, does not repent of the sin, does not make amends for that and try to find a way to restore trust. But he's just in the previous chapter, chapter 18, talked about forgiveness and how many times should we forgive. And so he's, he's married Genesis, I mean, excuse me, Matthew 18 and Matthew 19 together so that we see that there are times when Offending spouse is truly repentant, confesses his sin, her sin, with tears, asks for forgiveness, and does the hard work of rebuilding trust of the violated spouse. Have I ever seen this happen? Yes, I have. Not a lot, but I've seen it happen on probably almost two hands in 30 years of ministry. So no. Let me just say this quickly because we need to move on to the next part. In many ways, this parallels what we believe about church discipline and what I hope you're beginning to see about church discipline. Church discipline is not about punishing people. Church discipline is about saying, if we have a church member who falls into sin and they absolutely refuse to repent of their sin, what does the church do? Just go, oh, well, I guess you're going to do what you're going to do. No, the church says, we cannot abide for that to go on within our body. So we're going to separate you from our body until you repent. Okay? Now, remember, there's a lot of steps where you get to that point. Then if the person repents and confesses that sin and asks to come back, they're welcome back with open arms. So in the same way in a marriage, a spouse may be unrepentant. They may be unsorry and they may not see any problem with what they have done. And so the only option may be for the marriage to be ended in divorce, but always with the idea that if that spouse were to repent at some point in the future, see the error of their ways and come back, the relationship could potentially be restored. It's really no different. Well, what do the Pharisees say next after that? We don't know. Because they just kind of disappear off the scene. Poof, they're gone. Now we have the disciples step in. Verse 10, we have this conversation that leads us to have a higher view of God's kingdom. Look at what they ask or what they say. The disciples said to him, wow. Well, I'll add the wow. 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 If the relationship of a man with his wife is like this, it's better not to marry at all. Now, what did they mean by that? Were they, were they just, were they chauvinists? If I can't do whatever I want with my woman, then I just might as well not marry her at all. Well, maybe. Were they just being realistic? Wow, if, it, if you really mean, Jesus, that, that a marriage is so important that it should last for life no matter what, I'm not sure I can get into that. Are you, give us a break here, will you? Life is tough. Maybe. But what I think was they just didn't understand. They didn't understand Jesus' new, higher ethic about what marriage was all about. You see, they still thought of marriage as a contract between two people, mainly a man who then marries. Actually, it was a contract between a man and a woman's father, but we won't get into all that right now. But it was a, it was a contract between two people, so if they decided to break the contract, no harm, no foul. They just go on their separate ways. And, God, and Jesus says, no, 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 no. God was involved in this process. But here's what's interesting. 
Jesus could have gone back and said, wait, wait, guys, you don't understand. Marriage is a beautiful thing. It's a wonderful thing. Don't you know how sweet it is to walk hand in hand with your sweetie pie down the shores of the Mediterranean and watch the waves lap up against the shore and see the doves flying down from the cliffs above and see the sun setting over the Mediterranean? But he didn't talk about marriage at all. He doesn't give them an apologetic for marriage. Instead, he takes the last thing that they said in that, in that statement It's better not to marry, and he responds to that. And all of a sudden, he shifts from talking about marriage to talking about singleness. And Jesus responds and says, not everyone can accept this saying. And this saying is the saying of the disciples. Not what he said earlier about marriage, but the saying is, boy, if if, if marriage is that hard, maybe we all just all stay single. He said, no, let me tell you something. Not everybody can do that, but only those it has been given to. What is Jesus talking about? He is talking about the gift of singleness. And yes, singleness is a gift from God. He goes on. He he talks about eunuchs, and eunuchs are certainly single. They're people who cannot perform the physical act that would make them be able to have a family and to consummate their marriage. And he says there are some eunuchs who are born that way. They're just born unable from their mother's womb. There are eunuchs who were made that way by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves. Now, that's metaphorically speaking. It doesn't mean that they have somehow or another self-inflicted themselves or self-mutilated themselves. It's that they have chosen willfully, volitionally, a life of singleness because of the kingdom of heaven. You see that last phrase? Don't forget that last phrase. Because of the kingdom of heaven. In other words, what Jesus is saying is there are some people whom God has gifted and given them the opportunity because of the work of his kingdom to choose a life of singleness. And we as a church, we as the church, need to understand that because we have fallen into the trap in the evangelical church, especially in America, of thinking a person is not whole until they're married and have children. They're more whole if they're married than single. They're even more whole if they have kids. we have forgotten that Jesus says, let anyone accept this who can. There are some people who, because of the kingdom of God, choose to abandon marriage in order to be of service to God. And that should be honored. Let me say that again. That should be honored, not scandalized, not treated with. Now, honey, when are you going to settle down and find yourself a good man? You see, what Jesus is doing is not just talking about singleness. He's talking about something much deeper than that. He's talking about where do we place the value of God's kingdom in relationship to our choices about life. And he says that the kingdom of heaven is so important, and it should be so important to us that it wouldn't surprise us at all if someone chose to give up marriage in order to honor the kingdom. And so, you have one person who feels that they've been called by God to develop and support the kingdom of God, support the gospel, focus on that. And so what they do is in a marriage relationship with their children, they seek to honor God. They seek to live lives that are testimonies to Christ and testimonies to the gospel. And another person over here desires completely to surrender their lives to God and to God's control. And they feel God leading them to take a life of singleness so they can model for other singles what it means to live a godly life, a Christ-filled life, a totally complete life as a single adult in today's world. I ask you, which is better? There's only one answer. Neither. They're both Christ-honoring. Can somebody give me an amen to that? 
Can somebody say, I acknowledge the fact that there are some people that God calls to be single? And we need to affirm that and honor that and see them as full partners in the gospel. See them as full. And you know what's so interesting to me? And I'm just, I, just, I didn't get to say this on the pre-record, but I've got five minutes and 28 seconds, so I can say it now. What amazes me, and listen to my heart, I'm not, I'm not being snarky, I'm not, I'm not browbeating, I'm just saying this from the depth of my heart. It is amazing to me that we will affirm single believers in every single field of life, education and business and politics and medicine and everything else except for one place. Where's the hardest place for a single person to find a job? In the church. Oh yeah, we know why that young unmarried youth pastor is coming to our church. Wink, wink, nod, nod. I'm not saying we've ever done that, this church. But I'm just saying typically in the church, we always are very, very distant. And I understand there are certain relationship issues when you have a single person and they're doing maybe counseling or business. I understand all that's just pragmatics. That's true of any single adult. But my thing is, of all places, we as the church should set the model for Galatians, for including everyone in the fold of Christ. Because as I was talking to someone just Wednesday night about this topic, I said, you know, the, and that actually this person said to me, said, you know, we need to emphasize family. We need to em emphasize what it means to be a godly family. We need to emphasize family values and Christian values in the home. But we also need to understand it's hard to be single in today's world too. It's hard to be a godly single today. And you see, for a single to choose not to take marriage for God's kingdom and stay celibate is just as much of a challenge, well, maybe even more of a challenge than for a person to live in a marriage relationship and remain faithful to the marriage. You see, in both cases, our role as believers is to model for a lost world how you can live this life and still be honoring to God. So this is Jesus' teaching, not only on marriage and divorce, but also on what does it mean to be single? Whether it's someone who has been through a divorce and chooses to remain single, whether it's someone that's widowed, or someone that feels that God has called them to live their lives as a single adult. But the bottom line is not about whether singleness is good or bad, or marriage is good or bad, or which is better. The bottom line is, where do we focus? We focus on the gospel. We focus on the kingdom. And whatever God calls us to do for the kingdom, we're willing to abandon everything that needs to be abandoned. Were you not in Bible study this morning, those of you that were? He says to that rich, rich young ruler, that young man, he says, you've got one idol in your life, and that's your possessions. So go sell it, come follow me. We'll see which God is number one. And so in the same way, we have to recognize that whether we are married, whether we are single, whether we are parents, whether we are not, our focus should primarily and first be on the gospel and on so what's the end of all of this? The end of all of this is this, that Christ gives us a high view of marriage in this passage. He teaches us that marriage is not something that is out from under the umbrella of Christ's protection and his lordship, that it comes under that. But he gives even a higher view of God's kingdom. Jesus is not opposed to marriage, but he is opposed to anyone who puts family or marriage or work or money or house or land ahead of his kingdom. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is, from this passage, where is the focus in my life? Whether you are single, married, divorced, widowed, where is your primary focus? What is it that gives you meaning and definition in your life? I believe what God would want us to hear this morning is if you are a student, a young adult, you've not been married yet, 
or you are still in your first marriage, please understand that God's original plan all the way back to the Garden of Eden is that he would take one man and one woman and put them together for one life. That is his original plan. So when you go into it, you go into it saying divorce is not going to be an option in our marriage because God did not give us that option. We are going to do whatever we can to live our lives as a unit under his lordship. If you have been divorced, and if you have been remarried, please understand, and hear me very, very carefully, I believe to the bottom of my heart that every single divorce, every divorce, somewhere in there, there's an element of sin. All the time, it's the sin of one particular spouse who sins against their their partner through infidelity or some other type of sin. Maybe it's just the sin of being selfish, not wanting to communicate. Maybe it's other things, but there's always something. And then once we determine what that sin is, then we can deal with that sin. But that does not mean that for the rest of your life, you're going to be living in an adulterous relationship. Once the sin is confessed, once whatever restoration that can be made is made, guess what? You are free to go on about your life. Please don't let anybody put a scarlet letter on your chest. A young couple two Christians, one the child of a pastor, the other a child of a deacon, deeply in love with each other, make the mistake one night of going further in their physical relationship than they should, and they find out that she is pregnant. Beloved, that's a sin. Premarital sex is not God's design. And so they have now sinned against God. They acknowledge that sin. They weep over that sin. They ask for God's forgiveness for that sin. They, they go to their parents. They confess that they have violated their parents' trust. And they go to God and ask him for forgiveness. I believe to the depth of my heart, the minute we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all that all unrighteousness. And from that point forward, they are at a new place. And there will always be consequences, but it doesn't mean there will always be punishment. And the same thing is true for you. If you've been through a divorce and you've been remarried, you may look back and say, you know what, I, I should never have done that. But you know what, you did. So you confess it. If you need to go back to that ex-spouse, say, I just want you to know, I'm sorry for the part I played in that divorce. Many of you have done this. I've heard you tell me. I'm sorry I, for the part I played in. I know we can't go back and undo it. I just want you to know that I'm sorry for what I did to put us through that. And then you can walk away with joy and peace knowing that his mercies are new every morning. But the thing that we all need to hear this morning is very simply that God says, put me first. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for what it teaches us. This is a message that very easily could offend people, but your word is so clear and your message is so filled with love and with grace. There's not a one of us in this room that in one way or other haven't violated your will for us. And no sin is greater than any other. And we come to you and we confess, we repent, we do what needs to be done to change the direction of our lives if we can. And we know that you will walk with us. So Father, I pray that this morning, whatever each individual in this room has heard, that your spirit will then take that and use it in their lives whatever it is that they need to take home from this, that they will do that. Father, there will be some in this room right now 
who have unconfessed sin. And it may not be about a divorce, maybe something totally different, but there's an unconfessed sin, a time in their lives when they did not put your kingdom first. They did not put the gospel first as their focus. They thought it was their decision rather than recognizing the fact that all decisions, if you are Lord, are yours and not ours. And they need to confess that and ask you to forgive and repent of that selfishness or whatever the sin was that they committed. Father, there may be others who are watching friends or family members go through the disillusion of a marriage, knowing the pain that it's going to bring. And they are praying with all their heart. I just would ask you to comfort them and help them to stay faithful and true in their prayers and to be there for that family member or that friend no matter what may happen. So that repentance can come in the life of those folks in a restored relationship with you or a new relationship with you if they're not believers. Father, whatever you're saying to us in these moments, I pray that you'll touch our hearts the power of your spirit and the truth of the gospel. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. We're going to stand together.